first church I ever pastored, there was a gentleman who prayed. He would pray the sweetest prayers that, you, that you'd ever heard. But oftentimes he'd just get real quiet and couldn't nobody hear him. So finally somebody come up to him and said, one day, he said, I can't hear a thing you're saying. He said, I ain't praying to you. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, I'd like to turn your attention again back to the book of Joel this morning. There's a phrase in the book of Joel that's found uh, about five different times uh, that we sort of kind of want to use as somewhat of a, as a catalyst uh, to, to today's thoughts. Um, but what we would like to notice, one thing, is that if you, if, if you look at the history of this book, there's, there's no date to which really to label um, the book of Joel. Scholars have no idea really when it was written. They don't know if it was before the exile, if it was after the exile. Um, you'll also notice that throughout this little bitty book, there's no mention of any of the kings in Israel. I find that particularly interesting. That there's no, no date to which you can pinpoint the book of Joel, and there's no specific uh, time wherewith to just sort of warehouse the importance of this minor prophet. Therefore, that kind of says to me that the, the truthfulness of this book is indeed timeless, and the application is from generation to generation. Um, because while, uh, while all the Bible is truth, while the Bible is written for us, not all of the Bible is written to us. There's a lot of things that were written to Israel that applied to Israel in Israel's day. And there were a lot of things that were written uh, by the Apostle Paul to the Gentile churches that applied at that time. But the things that are written in Joel, they have a little bit of a shadow of not only the things in his time, but things in our time and things in time to come as well. You'll notice that I already mentioned that the book of Joel is not about the disobedience of Israel's wicked kings. Uh, it is not about Israel being invaded by foreign kings and their uh, armies of tanks and guns and planes and foot soldiers. That's, that's not the theme of this book. The theme of this book is the vengeance of Israel's holy king. And it is his day that's under consideration. Five times in the book of Joel, the phrase, the day of the Lord, appears. Uh, so, for example, you can turn to chapter 1 and verse 15. And he says here that the day of the Lord is at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Chapter 2 and verse 1, in the middle of it, says, For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. Also, you may notice, chapter 2, verse 11, says that the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong, 
and executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? That little phrase, who can abide it, when I when you read that, really reminds you of the of the very last verse of Revelation chapter six, where it says, The day of the wrath of the Lord has come, and who shall be able to stand? That kind of gives you an idea that it not only applies in Joel's day, there is a prophecy in in chapter two here that Peter quotes in his day, so we know it applies there. But then because it sort of sounds like Revelation 6 and a little bit of the end of time, it also applies there. So you see that this has a far-reaching implication, more than just one specific date in history. Chapter 2, verse 31 says that the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. The last... uh, The last scripture is in chapter 3 and verse 14. We'll simply read this one. It says, Multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. I've heard that text often applied to uh, lost sinners out here. Lost sinners in a valley, you need to make a decision before the day of the Lord come and, and the world ends. No friends, he's writing to the house of Israel. He's writing to the same house of Israel uh, that Elijah the prophet wrote to. When Elijah's standing on Mount Carmel and you have Israel on one hand and the prophets of Baal on the other. And he looks at Israel and he says, if God be God, serve him. But if Baal be God, serve him. And he asks him a question, he says, how long halt ye between opinions. If God is God, serve Him. But if Baal is God, then serve Baal. Make up your mind. James himself writes in his little epistle, uh, he says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. You'll find that one of the biggest problems that God's people have in life is trying to figure out how to live like the world while being a Christian. And that is an impossibility. It is an impossibility to live a happy, joyful, better yet, holy life. With one foot in the church and one foot in the grave. The day of the Lord is a reminder throughout this whole book. The king is Jehovah, and it is his day. Something is coming to pass on the land of Israel. When you read, when you read the Old Testament, we, read, we, read, we went through a little bit of Hosea last month. We're going through a little bit of Joel this month. Uh, does it seem to you that it's a little heavy-handed on the negativity? Y'all get that idea whenever you read the Old Testament. You ever wondered why that is? I've, I was uh, sitting sitting there pondering that this morning. Why does it seem that the, that the Old Testament is just so heavy-handed on negativity? Well, if the book of Hosea, if the book of Hosea was played out on a court, Hosea would be the prosecutorial 
evidence against the nation of Israel. I guess the prosecutor would stand for however long it took, whether it be hours or days or weeks, and lay out all the evidence against the criminal. Hosea was the evidence against Israel. Joel would be the verdict against them. Read here that this is about the king. This is about his day. They're not being invaded by a foreign foreign enemy or a foreign uh, foreign king and his army. They're being invaded by God and by his army, a band of insects and a drought. Let's notice just how how terrible this is. It's in chapter two. Chapter two, beginning really. Uh, Really with verse 2, when it says that it's a day of darkness and gloominess, that's, that's twofold. You ever notice when it's stormy, rainy outside, that it's not only dark and gloomy on the outside, but it's also dark and gloomy on the inside? Don't you get discouraged and depressed a little easier uh, when the sun is gone and it's overcast and it's just dreary outside? You know, the winter wonderland in December is now turned into January's cold gray bucket of yuck, right? Everything's dead. It's just cold. It's bitter. This is a twofold application here. Not only is it uh, dark and gloomy on the inside of us, but as they look out the window, one of the reasons that it's dark and gloomy is this great big swarm and plague of locusts that's just covering the land. Notice what it says here, as morning spread upon the mountains. If you've ever woken up on, on the top of a mountain or on the side of a mountain and you see the mist uh, that covers the mountain, you can't see anything because the mist is so thick, and yet the mist can't do anything. It's just water droplets, right? Notice what it said here in verse 3. Notice just how uh, deplorable this situation is, this, this army. Just notice how... Uh, the fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained, all faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march every one of them on his way, and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter into the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. And the stars shall withdraw their shining. This army that is coming upon them. You cannot reason with them. You cannot reason with them. You cannot threaten them. Uh, you cannot sanction them. Political maneuvering uh, does not manipulate them, and the promise of wealth does not persuade them. These animals come at the direction of God, 
they go at his appointment. And it said here that when they fall upon the sword, they shall not hurt them. You ever tried to swat a hornet with a stick? You ever tried to swat a bug with a stick? Uh, You ever been riding on a lawnmower and cut over a nest of yellow jackets? Yes, I got you on that one. It's amazing. You can sit there on top of that nest and they'll just come right out from under it. Not touch a single blade. You cannot reason. You cannot argue. You cannot persuade. You cannot motivate these creatures that are sent at the hand of God. The result of his day that he's bringing in the nation of Israel and the land of Israel at this time is fire, famine, and economic collapse. It is a day of complete devastation, catastrophic loss, and total ruin. That was hinted at in verse 2, or verse 3 up here, where it said that a a fire devoureth before them and behind them a flame burneth. So, you know, you just get this, you get this image here of here comes this great fire pushing its way uh, through the forest. And what does that fire leave behind it but destruction? The land actually looks as of, as of the Garden of Eden before them. As these locusts come, what are they seeing here? They see this, what the Bible is laying out here. It looks as if the Garden of Eden is before them. And yet what is behind them? A desolate wilderness. These locusts, this army that is sent by the Lord, simply takes and never gives back. It's a little bit like time. Time in your life to take. And it never gives back. What's before you? Possibility. What's behind me? Missed opportunities. In the wake of this army that has come through and in the wake of this uh, retribution that God has poured out upon the nation of Israel, In the wake of such a time as this, the people are left with depression, sorrow, discouragement, and great sadness. Notice in chapter 1, verse 12, he says that the vine is dried up, fig tree languisheth, pomegranate tree, palm tree also in the apple tree. Even all the trees of the field are withered, His joy is withered away from the sons of men. Verse 16 of chapter 1 says, Is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. Chapter uh, chapter 1 verse 18 says, How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. The beasts groan 
You hear the lowing of the oxen. You hear the bleeding of the sheep because there's no food to eat. There's no water to drink. It's not a pleasant or pretty time. We've already covered verse 2 of chapter 2 that it's a day of darkness and gloominess. You know, seeing in this that this God of glory is this great and mighty and majestic king who when he speaks, it happens. His word will not be stopped. Who would want to attempt to stand against one so mighty as this? You see a lot of fussing, a lot of arguing, a lot of bickering in this world. One, because there's no respect. Two, because there's no reverence and fear. Oftentimes you have to you have to just kind of ask yourself, why would anybody really want to oppose the Lord? The only reason that anybody would really want to oppose the Lord was because simply they don't understand who He is. He cannot be bought. He cannot be motivated with fame, and fortune. These locusts that are moving through Israel, they are not uh, sympathetic to the loss of Israel. They are not um, nostalgic for the things that the Israelites have. When I think about this, I think about... uh, a question that is asked in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Our Lord asks a question concerning the uh, subject of preparation. In Luke 14, he says, in verse 31, For what king, going to make war against another king, Sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? And if you're going to oppose somebody that's sitting across the table from you, the first thing that you might ought to ask yourself is, can you actually do that? If it can't be done, then the Lord says this in verse 32, or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. I think a lot of that is laid out in, in the book of Joel, the concept of understanding uh, that this great and mighty king that's coming upon their land, he cannot be defeated. He cannot be bargained with. He cannot be bought. A begging of peace has to occur. And the reality that we know, believing in the gospel of grace, is that peace doesn't come from us. 
Ultimately, peace was made with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. He had to go to the cross on our behalf and make eternal peace with God forever. But I would like you to notice that in the book of Joel, we are not necessarily talking about eternal sonship peace, but we are talking about fellowship of peace down here on this planet. There are two times in, uh, in the book of Joel that there's a phrase that is mentioned. The phrase is, blow ye the trumpet in Zion. In uh, Joel chapter 2, this phrase appears in verse 1. This phrase appears in verse 15. Joel chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Verse 15, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a feast, and call a solemn assembly. Well, the, the blowing of trumpets is all through the New, throughout the Old Testament, is it not? Uh, when Israel marched around the walls of Jericho, they marched the last day. At the last time they marched, they blew the trumpet, the walls fell down. Uh, at the 50th year, they were to sound trumpets. It was the year of Jubilee, the year of deliverance. So we see that this, this plays a part uh, in Israel's history. But now, he says, blow the trumpet, sound an alarm. Um, the Apostle Paul makes reference to this, I believe, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 14 the Apostle Paul says, if this is 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 8. <clears throat> Here he says, For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So we understand the purpose for trumpets or bugles, however you want to say it in the battle. But they either tell you to charge or they tell you to retreat. And if the trumpet doesn't make the right sound, the army doesn't know the right thing to do. The trumpet of the Old Testament was replaced with the proclamation of the gospel in the New Testament. Notice what Paul says here. He says, so likewise ye, this is verse 9, so likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known? What is spoken? Now, the passage here kind of covers a little bit about the subject of speaking in tongues or speaking with tongues. Paul says if you stand up in a congregation and it's, it's unintelligible to the people that are around you, what have you accomplished? So likewise, when the preachers stand up and when I get done, what I've said is unintelligible to the people that have heard me, what does it accomplish? Many of you, uh, some of you, have grown up in here under sound, clear preaching. Some of us grew up under not-so-sound, clear preaching. Do you know uh, what I am uh, uh, talking about? Uh, some of us grew up in that old sing-songy, uh, rhythmic preaching where the people really didn't think he was preaching unless he was in a rhythm and he was talking and he was. And by the time you get done, you say, well, at least he enjoyed himself. The Bible reminds us several places in the Old Testament that you speak in a clear, 
understandable way, uh, sought out acceptable words, preach in a clear manner that the people completely understand what you're talking about. Well, here the Lord says to the, to the nation of Israel, He says, blow a trumpet, but the trumpet you better blow is the sound of an alarm. He says, blow a trumpet of an alarm. And he also says uh, in verse 15, uh, sanctify fast and call a solemn assembly. He doesn't say call, a, call an assembly. He says call a solemn assembly. The term solemn means serious. It is appropriate to come to the house of the Lord and have joy. The Bible tells us that at His right hand are uh, pleasures and joys evermore. But this is not a circus. This is not laugh happy time. This is not how we can see how happy and uplifted and, and how many pews we can jump. That's not what this is about. This is a time for us to focus on the God of glory. And especially in their day, the assembly was to be called to be a solemn, serious assembly. Uh, notice in, in chapter 1, <clears throat> chapter 1 and verse 8, he calls Israel to lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Get, you have any idea what that means? Uh, a lot of folk may not know what that means in today's society. Um, there's, there's two ways that you can look at this. You have a young girl who is espoused to a young man. They've not come together yet. They've not been married. They've not uh, consummated their marriage she's expecting this. Maybe the marriage is next week. Maybe the next marriage is in a few hours. And she gets the news her husband has died. You think about the sorrow that the young girl would feel having to plan a funeral instead of a wedding. Or you have this young girl that they have been married and maybe they're on their way to their honeymoon and something occurs and he dies on the way. Whichever situation you think of in this, in this case, the sorrow and the lamentation is the same. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've ever lamented or sorrowed over anything like this in my life. But that is the call that Israel uh, is to, that is the call that is to be made to Israel. He says, lament. The second thing that he says in verse 11, he says, Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. There's lamenting, uh, there's howling, there's being ashamed. You're not allowed to shame anybody in America today, are you? 
Not allowed to point out anything anybody's ever done wrong in America, are you? Interesting. Let me, let me relate to you a little, uh, little situation that happened in the last couple of weeks. Most of y'all in here uh, don't have social media. Most of you older groups. I doubt very seriously that Jerry has a Twitter account. Uh, not very many of y'all in here have a Twitter account. You, you might have a bird feeder out back, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, there's, there was a pastor here in the last few weeks who posted on his Twitter page, Dear Young Ladies. There's really no reason for you to post pictures of yourself scantily clad in showing your diet loss or your baby body or anything of that nature. There's no real need for you to post a picture of yourself in your bra and your panties on the Internet at any time. And you wouldn't believe the backlash she got from that. The number of people who wrote in not only responded to that, but sent him inappropriate pictures of themselves. Pornographic pictures of themselves. And I like the way he handled it. He says, that's mighty grown up of y'all. Especially those of y'all that participate in the Me Too movement. And you hate uh, sexual harassment at work. And you hate inappropriate advances. And yet, what have you just done but harassed and sent me inappropriate pictures? People have, pro people have proven 30 seconds. They can't hold to their own laws. We have lost the ability to be ashamed of who we are and what we do. People don't blush anymore. People don't shy away from, from evil. We, actually, what, what we try and do is, is see See how close we can get to the line and not fall and still be God. Verse 13 says, gird yourselves and lament. Lament, you priests, howl, you ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. I bet we could go down to the local uh, seminary and I bet they would... Uh, have a class down there on proper Greek hermeneutics. I bet you they'd have a proper uh, class down there on the difference between uh, supralapsarianism, sublapsarianism, and all that kind of nonsense. But I bet you they don't have a class on howling and weeping. I bet you they don't have a class on weeping and mourning. And I bet they don't have a class on repentance. I bet that's not down there. Lamenting, howling. Verse 14. Um, we, I want to read 14 and run into 15 because we started a little bit on 15 while ago. Verse 14 says, Sanctify ye a feast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Call out unto the Lord. What are they supposed to cry unto the Lord? Alas for the day. Oh my, for the day. What is happening for this day? For the day of the Lord is at hand. And 
and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Sound and alarm, for if this day continues, there will be nobody here to stand. He says in chapter 2 and verse 12, Therefore now also saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now we know the rending of the garments is, is popular and prominent in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when Jesus claimed to be God in the New Testament, they'd arrested him and they hauled him before the high priests and Jesus didn't really deny that he was God. They wanted him to. And he said the priest jumped off and ripped his garments and ripped his clothes apart. You've heard the blasphemy! Who was that prophet in the Old Testament that laid three years on his left side? Naked? Prophesying against the rebelliousness of Israel. One thing to rent your garments. It's one, one, one thing to throw a bunch of junk out of your house. It's something completely different to throw that junk out of your heart. And every one of us in here know we can throw a bunch of junk out of our house and it's still be in our heart. Because we go and rebuy it. Is what we do. Right? And do you have the same problem that I have? Is it if I throw it away, next week I need it? But, but, if I, but if I hoard it, I'll never use it again? And a lot of times sin is kind of like that. you got it locked away. you got it hidden away. It's hidden somewhere. You're not really using it, but you're too, you're too dumb to get rid of it. Am I the only one that has that problem? Maybe. Interesting how interesting how weird we are. He he says, blow a trumpet, sound an alarm, call a solemn assembly. You, you ever been to you ever been to church meetings and somebody stands up and they talk about what's wrong with the church? Talk about all the problems that's wrong with the church. Um it's, it's easy to point out what's wrong with the church. How about we point out how to fix what's wrong with the church? How about that? Um, I can tell you everything you're doing wrong raising your teenager. If you want to know everything you're doing wrong raising your teenager, I can tell you. I failed at raising three of them. I can't tell you a thing right to do with them. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Um, easy to gather a crowd to complain. Y'all ever notice that? It's easy to take center stage and rage against the machine that is social injustice. Get your little soapbox and go downtown and stand on the street corner and talk about the mean white man. Talk about capitalism. Talk about how bad America is. And folks will run around you and they'll applaud. And it's easy to get roars preaching to the choir. What about self-examination? Self-examination ain't as easy as pointing out what's wrong with everybody else. Again, 
tell you everything you're doing wrong. Because when I point out what's wrong with you, you're not looking at me anymore, right? When I point out what y'all are doing wrong, nobody's looking at me. Everybody's looking at you. And I can hide behind my ridicule and my hate of everybody else. I'm reminded, though, of what occurred in the book of Nehemiah. I can't remember. I had a problem with this. I can't remember if I quoted this verse last week or if I quoted this verse to myself Wednesday or yesterday. I don't want the church to think I'm preaching the same sermon again. But then I think about how many times y'all have watched the same shows all over again and listen to the same music again. And uh, so uh, I guess until I find a better verse, I'm going to quote this one. But you remember Nehemiah. When Nehemiah heard about the destruction of Jerusalem, he was given leave of where he was at to travel to the city of Jerusalem and help them rebuild the walls. But the first thing he did when he got there in Nehemiah chapter 2 was that he went out by night and he observed the conditions of the broken down walls in chapter 2. Didn't tell anybody he was there uh, except for a couple of people and didn't tell them what he was doing either. Just want to observe, want to look at what we got going on here. But the important thing is Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17, where he finally turned to everybody. He said in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that the Moabites are in. Huh? That's not what it says, is it? I'm sorry, let me back up. You see the distress that the homosexuals are in. You see the distress that we are in. Who's in this? We are. And what's even more astounding about that is Nehemiah did not have to come back to Israel. He was a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. He, w- he was sitting fat and large. He was well taken care of where he was at. Now, he was a prisoner, but he was taken well care of. So when he hears how fallen the city of Jerusalem is, even after being released from captivity. See, the destruction that Israel is in is not something that occurred overnight. It's something that had laid waste for many years. They had been led away to captivity and then released away from that cavity, uh, captivity to go back to Jerusalem. And then they just kind of sat there. But they did what a lot of us do when we're faced with how to deal with a mess. They sit down. They see how large the mess is. They don't know where to start, so they give up. We were talking about this. Last night at the table, um, we've been living in our house for 20 years. If we were to move, where do we begin? What do we throw away? I know we have toys in the playroom that our children haven't played with in four years. I know, I know we've got them in there. Maybe part of my problem is that as soon as I let go of that toy, that toddler I have, it surely dies. That's this the problem that a lot of, that a lot of adults face. They, sometimes they don't realize it. Is that you have this infant that comes along, 
sweet little thing. Everybody wants to rock the new baby. Everybody wanted to rock our new babies as soon as they come along until they peed, pooped, or threw up. Then all of a sudden they were ours. And I want to be like, now wait a minute. It was fine when I gave it to you. You broke it. You fixed it. But all of a sudden something happens. They give it back to us. But the moment that that infant moves into its toddler stage, the infant dies. He's he's not there anymore. The moment that the toddler moves into the teenage phase, the toddler dies. We have this constant death and sort of resurrection in in a loose sense throughout their whole history. And, and if you don't quite know how to deal with that as a parent, it's very hard to let go. So what do I throw away with the house first? What do I start with first? One day I'm going to have grandkids, right? Don't I need to keep this till the grandkids come along? Um, Nehemiah goes back to the city and he sees the broken down walls. And he doesn't look at Jerusalem and say to them, what have you been doing this whole time? He says, folks, we have a problem. Anytime you go into a church, you go into a family, And you use phrases like they and them. You know you have a division. It's they's fault. It's them's fault. Somebody else needs to fix it. This is kind of the whole problem with the environmental wackos nowadays. Uh, They want to shut down the coal plants. They want to get rid of uh, gas-burning cars. Because it's, you know, your fault. The world is exploding because you're driving your SUV. Yeah, but you drove here in a car to tell me to stop driving my car. You bought a $1,200 Apple computer so that you could blog about the dangers of capitalism. While you sip your $5 Starbucks coffee and your designer jeans, and shoes. But it's everybody else's problem. They want everybody else to fix it and not themselves. And here's an even uglier one. Overpopulation. We need to sterilize the next generation because we're overpopulating the earth. Hey, how about you just punch your ticket and step on out? Hmm. No, nobody wants that one, do they? Because nobody wants to look at self-examination. And that's what Nehemiah did when he got to the city of Jerusalem. He said, hey, folks, this is not about a, 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 an us versus a them thing. This is a we thing. This is not because, you know, we belong to this association and somebody else belongs to that association and... And we don't have anything to do with those who aren't even in an association at all. That ain't got nothing to do with it. This is an us thing. This is we. You see, 
The question comes is, um, in the book of Joel, is, is revival an individual thing or is revival a collective thing? Does revival come because one person cares or does revival come because everybody cares? Well, I'll grant it that revival can come to everybody because one person did care. But I'd like for you to also notice as you read through the book of Joel, surely somebody read this book. So surely somebody took 12 minutes out of one day this week and read the book of Joel. Ain't got the six chapters in it. Got the three chapters in it. You could read probably most of y'all could read it twice by the time you get home this afternoon from church. I'll quit early so you can get started. Uh, revival may indeed need to start with repentance in the pulpit. Uh, but it's got to be accompanied with repentance in the pew. If there's repentance in the pulpit and no repentance in the pew, the pulpit will be empty in a few weeks. Because either he will leave or they will throw him out. That's just all there is to that. Let's see what is asked of Israel in Joel. Joel chapter 1, verse 14. Gather the elders, and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God. So who's supposed to come into the house of God? The elders of Israel? Now, we're not talking about the old people. We're talking about the ministerial leaders here. The elders and who? All the inhabitants. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow you the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. So the elders are there. All the inhabitants of the land are supposed to come into the house of God. The inhabitants of the land are supposed to tremble before the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 16. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Hey, who are we bringing into the house of God here? Everybody. The entire congregation, from the oldest person down to the smallest newborn infant, is to be in the house of God. This is why we have family integrated worship. It's always puzzled me. It's always puzzled me that the popular, uh, well-known uh, denominations talk about we are family uh, family focused until you get to church, and then your family disappeared. The old people go here. The young people go there. The infants go over yonder. The singles go in this department. The divorce go over yonder. They, everything's family focused except church. Oh, well, they can't understand. They can't learn. They have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, they don't know what a war eagle is either. But you dress them in their orange and blue and they're red and white. And you paint them in their battle colors and haul them out to Hell's Kitchen down there and scream and holler. The four-year-old doesn't know the ref is wrong except you told him he was wrong. If they can learn to scream and holler at people on the ball field or on the TV, they can learn to listen to God. It's that simple. 
when I was growing up, uh, Sister Leanna Webster, remember Bethany Church in Atlanta, and she had a whole, whole bunch of kids. And she'd said to me, she said, I haven't heard a sermon in seven years. I had no idea what she was talking about. That we had a bunch of kids. And then I understood that her ministry was to make sure that those children came to church and were there. Now, most wives in a congregation have a benefit that the preacher's wife doesn't have. It's the wife has backup on Sunday morning. We got the bookends right here. This is a perfect example right here. One on one end, one on the other, and the trouble in the middle. And and when it gets out of hand, somebody or someone can take care of it. Preacher's wife, what has she got? Those wrinkles aren't laugh lines. Well, not always. Some of them are. Uh, are we going to be serious though? I mean, when are churches going to get serious about having family integrated worship? There's no room in God's Word anywhere for splitting and dividing, breaking up, shoveling off, this, that, and the other. If people actually understood where Sunday schools came from, they'd they'd be a lot less quick to think. They don't understand that uh, Sunday schools began in Gloucester, England by a man named Robert Rakes, who was a Methodist. And at that time, there were no child work labor laws. And so he realized that all these children were working constantly. There was no organized schooling. And so he'd look out at his congregation and see how many children were out there. And he says, you know, I've got all these people here. This is a perfect time with all these people gathered here to take a little bit of time in the morning to teach children how to read and write. So before church, we'll have school and we'll teach them how to read and write. And as most things that human beings put their hands to, they ruin. And somebody said, well, look at all these children here. This is a great opportunity to get them all saved. And so we'll just have Sunday school before church. Was not started by Christ, was not started by the apostles, was not a part of church history until the 1700s. But now we think we can't do without it. Something that started started as a, a, a simple idea to teach people how to read and write became a tool to save the lost, which God never told them to do. People really understood where a lot of things came from. They'd be less likely to defend them so vehemently. The people are to be gathered, all of them. Bring them in here. You know, at one point in the in the Old Testament, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's in the book of Jonah, where Jonah comes to to Nineveh and tells them in 40 days Nineveh is going to be overthrown, and everybody repented from the king, even down. They even started putting sackcloth and ashes on their animals. Have you ever been to a time where somebody uh, was at church and they and they had prayer meeting for their mule? I've never been to the, I've never been anything like that. See, I'm a city slicker. Uh, that's that's ridiculous. Why would anybody have prayer meeting for their mule? Does anybody know? Huh? Because the mule, the animal pulls the plow. And if the animal's sick, 
The man's got to do it, and I don't think he can. If God doesn't heal this, this animal I've got, I've, I've got no way to work. There was a different trust in God back then before the specialists came along. Never did really pray for the Lord to heal my lawnmower. Probably should have a time to. But didn't need to. I take the mechanic, mechanic fix. In the book of Joel, though, here, here's a problem. You can't take the mechanic. You can't take it down to stock in the box. There's only one thing you can do, and that's surrender. Surrender and ask, will he bless? In uh, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn you even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious. Ooh, I was waiting for that word. This has been ugly up to this point, hadn't it? He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. When, when it talks about God repenting, that doesn't mean that God has to acknowledge that he has done anything wrong. That just means that God has decided not to whip you. And it's not because he's weak. And here is here's the wonderful question that is asked in verse 14. You know, if we are able to actually turn to the Lord with all our heart, and if he actually does listen, hey, who knoweth? Verse 14, who knoweth if, if he will return and repent and, and leave a blessing behind him? even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. See, when the locusts came through, what did they leave behind? Nothing. What did the takers leave behind? Nothing. But when God decides to come back through with mercy and graciousness, what does he leave behind? Here it says a meat offering and a drink offering. He leaves behind something for you to use to worship him. See, the singing, the singing that we had this morning, that we enjoyed, people think we're weird enough, right, as old Baptists. There's not enough entertainment here for a lot of folk. So when they come here, we want them to hear good singing. Ultimately, we want the Lord to be pleased with what we've done. Perhaps when he comes through, maybe he'll leave a breadcrumb behind. Maybe he'll drop something off to the side so we can pick it up and use to worship him with. Because in me and in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. There's not anything I have in my hand to offer him. The only thing I have to offer him and to worship him with is what he has done for me to start with. The only thing that we have to come here and remind us of is that there's a fountain filled that flows with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. 
not mine and not yours. The promise that comes after this that maybe we'll address some of this next week is in verse 28 that he will pour out of his chapter 2 verse 28 that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. You see, the only hope, our only hope, whether it's this church, whether it's your family, whether it's this nation, the only hope that we have is the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must first intervene in a man's life. And quicken him from death and sins to life in Christ. That's the work of the Holy Ghost. We call that, we refer to that as the immediate work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't mean immediate as in instantaneous, even though it is instantaneous. We mean immediate, I am immediate, without a mediator. In other words, the Holy Spirit does the work himself. He doesn't use the preacher. He doesn't use the preaching of the gospel. He doesn't use the soul winner. He doesn't use a tract or a pamphlet. He doesn't use your help. He does that himself. We are first and foremost at his mercy that he must intervene and quicken men from death and sins to life in Christ. But after that, he must continually convict men of their sins. must look at us and convict us of our sins and convert us from our sins through the preaching of the Word. The preaching of the Word is not saving you for eternity, but the preaching of the Word is paving a pleasant path for you down here in this life. It is a road map. It's basic instructions before leaving earth is what it is. It's a Bible. It's basic instruction before leaving this earth. Got it? Basic instruction before living eternally. That's what it is. If the Holy Ghost does not light a fire of revival in our pulpit to guide us on our way, we're nothing more than a social club. Nothing more than a social club of positive, self-taught messages. Not what we want. We want a revival. And not just that people would fill the pews, but that God would fill our lives. be in prayer for the prayer meeting we're going to have next week where we've attempted to do this. A lot of things have just kind of fallen in place for some of this. A lot of thoughts have been on other people's minds at the same time. Maybe this is the Lord calling us. Maybe He's calling us back to Himself. Maybe He'll allow us to come before Him again. Maybe he'll fill this house with his glory. Let's pray. Thank you for your.